Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 5th of October 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, uh, bringing us Eastern Approaches from yes. the Netherlands. Um, a bumpy ride. I think it's going to be uh, a, a, a lot more than that. Uh, absolutely. So Boris on, uh, on the uh, Andrew Marr show yesterday, it will continue to be a bumpy through Christmas, it may even be bumpy beyond. I wasn't sure whether he was talking about COVID or himself, uh, because of course there are rumours that uh, he may be gone by Christmas. Uh, they're just rumours, who knows? Well, so maybe he's thinking that he's gonna have a bumpy ride himself until Christmas and maybe a little bit beyond. My money's on Gove as the replacement. That's just a personal opinion. He's talking or he's using phrases like bumpy as we move deeper into this dictatorship. Yes. OK, well, let's uh, have a little bit of fun with the uh, the testing situation. Uh, your computer ran into a problem and it couldn't handle that. It couldn't handle and your latest SARS-CoV-2 positive statistics could not be uploaded. That's what we are uh, branding this. An IT blunder is how it's being described. Twenty two thousand nine hundred and sixty one cases reported on Sunday and uh, Twelve thousand eight hundred and seventy two reported on Saturday, uh, all because nobody was able to report them in the run-up to the uh, to the previous uh, uh, in the previous week or so because apparently the file sizes that were trying to be uploaded of, of uh, positive test results were too big uh, and they couldn't be uploaded so there you go that is extraordinary when you see the scale of the of the global companies that have been brought into the background to deal with this and they they couldn't get the scale of it right. No, indeed. Uh, so what did, uh, what did the uh, interim chief executive of uh, Public Health England say? A technical issue was identified overnight on Friday the 2nd of October. In the data load process, the transferred COVID-19 positive lab results into reporting dashboards. Of course, he's at least framing it correctly. These are positive test results. These are not cases. But anyway, we'll come on to that in a second. He went on to say after rapid investigation, we've identified that 15,841 cases. No, he means positive test results between the 25th of September and the 2nd of October were not included in the reported daily COVID-19 statistics. Uh, every one of these cases uh, received their COVID-19 test result as normal and all those who tested positive uh, were, who were advised to self-isolate. Uh, NHS Test and Trace and Public Health England have worked to quickly resolve the issue and transferred all outstanding cases immediately to the NHS test and trace contact tracing system. So I'm sure we all feel much better uh, knowing that. Uh, well, if we look at what the, uh, the government uh, uh, dashboard now says, it's, uh, this is the UK total uh, of uh, uh, cases as they describe it. Of course, what they mean is positive test results because positive test results does not equal cases. Uh, then uh, we find that obviously we're getting a, a highly uh, upward trend towards the right hand side of that uh, but of course that is uh, that particular graph there shows um, the the positive tests I should say um, as they were uh, identified not as they were reported the Daily Mail preferred to uh, sort of highlight uh, the numbers based on the version of the graph which shows uh, that the uh, positive test results based on the date that they were, were reported which of course was Saturday and Sunday which makes it look uh, 10 times worse than it was. Uh, there's no propaganda in this article at all. Furious tens of thousands of Britons are put at, ri at risk by a glitch that saw 16,000 new cases uh, missed from computer system in a week. Uh, their contacts not told for days. 
as official figures suddenly jump 22,961 in 24 hours with 33 more deaths. And of course, nothing jumped 22,961 in 24 hours because those positive test results came over a period of a week or two prior to the situation. So uh, that's where we are. Brian, the test and trace system working really, really well, but it gets even better because of course, as we uh, keep making the point, these are positive test results as a result of PCR tests. And most of the uh, particularly bad test results come from Pillar 2, which is the private sector testing that's going on. Um, and uh, the, well, some people arguing that 90% uh, of those positive tests are false positive tests. And I think that uh, case has been shown to be correct, uh, but it uh, potentially gets worse here. Uh, this uh, is from the end of September and it's the Independent and the headline is Lufthansa to offer rapid coronavirus testing, but only for first and business class passengers. Oh dear. Um, well, what are they talking about here? Of course, this is the type of test that Boris Johnson has been talking about, the really convenient uh, antibody test that's going to take a matter of minutes to get a result from. Uh, the, the test, the type of test that Boris described as being very similar to taking a pregnancy test. Uh, and so this article saying that at the end of that uh, Lufthansa had announced plans to offer rapid COVID-19 testing uh, to passengers. Uh, but it says that uh, they were going to be using uh, a, a test which is much uh, faster than PCR testing uh, and uh, it was going to be from a company providing a test called Binax Now and the company is Abbott's. Um, so here it is, uh, here we go, Binax Now taking uh, COVID-19 testing to a new level, rapid antigen test uh, and uh, so this is all about scaling up access to coronavirus testing. Uh, but here's the problem, if we actually look at the the sort of disclaimer at the bottom, the Binax Now COVID-19 UAA uh, test has not been FDA cleared or approved. So this is an American company. Have, they haven't had approval or clearance from the FDA to sell this, uh, except it has been authorized by the FDA under an emergency use authorization for use by authorized laboratories. So that's where we're at. Now, the information that we are getting is that the reliability of these tests uh, these particular tests, not singling out this particular manufacturer, uh, it, you know, on, on their own here, but these types of tests are even less reliable than the PCR tests and actually much more likely to provide positive, uh, false positive results. Um, so the rolling these types of tests out is only going to make the situation even worse. Well, this is upping the angst the whole time and getting people used to the idea of being tested, Mike. And somebody in our chat box has said, yeah, you get used to being tested and then you get used to being vaccinated. So this is a psychological operation on a massive scale again. Um, Alex, uh, maybe we could bring you in at this point and say uh, and ask, you know, what is the situation on the continent? Are, are people in the Netherlands and Germany and France getting the same level of bombardment over testing as, as we are in Britain? The same panic wave, Mike, is common to the Netherlands and Germany. I'm a little further out of the news loop if you go into the Mediterranean countries, but it's certainly seen from what I'm seeing that France and Belgium are in the same picture. So they're the other neighbouring countries to here. Uh, we are seeing increased numbers of hospitalizations, including some who have genuinely worrying chest x-rays and a couple who are in intensive care in most hospitals now. That is the picture. Uh, so something abnormal uh, is going on uh, as, as far as it can appear to a layman like me. 
Um, well, of course, David Scott and I have discussed with John Cullen and Jason Goodman how much of this is uh, Spanish influenza. And uh, there's many subcategories, uh, all those acronyms that start with H for different kinds of influenzas. That apparently has not been bottomed out yet. That's what John Cullen in particular is working on the stats for. But yes, the, the, the fear and the idea that you've tested positive, you're a case, that is absolutely what you find in the Netherlands and further afield. Um, okay, thank you for that. Now let's uh, move on to vaccines then, because of course uh, over the weekend uh, we got the information via the BBC that the two main government-backed vaccines in the UK have had some quite interesting codenames. Uh, Ambush for the um, Imperial College uh, vaccine, uh, Triumph for the Oxford vaccine. I think perhaps these uh, names give us a clue as to the, the, the kind of thinking that's going on in the background there. Yeah, they definitely give a clue uh, to the mindset, uh, Mike. It's, you know, the same when we see Cobra teams, uh, which is another one of the favourites. So they've always got a slightly sinister label to them. And I think that's indicative of the mindset of the people who create them. Um, absolutely. So here we are, the BBC, coronavirus, doctors told to plan for vaccination scheme. Uh, let's just have a look and see what the BBC was saying here. Doctors in the West Midlands have been told for a mass uh, to plan for a mass coronavirus vaccination scheme from as early as November. A leaked document identifies two vaccines that are expected to be available this year. Max, mass vaccination sites uh, and mobile facilities are being commissioned as part of, uh, and that is the BBC's typo, by the way, that's not mine, as part of as a fairly massive exercise, it should say as part of a fairly mass massive exercise. According to the document, the two vaccines are called Ambush and Triumph. Ambush needs to be stored at minus 70 Celsius uh, and kept in hospitals due to regulations set down by the Medicines Health Regulatory Authority. That's very interesting. We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, the Triumph vaccine is expected to be one developed by Oxford University and AstraZeneca, which can be stored at room temperature. Uh, now, of course, this uh, Oxford University AstraZeneca uh, vaccine uh, and the, uh, the uh, Imperial College vaccine were discussed by Matt Hancock uh, back in, in May. Uh, let's just remind ourselves what Matt Hancock said at that time. In the long run, the best way to defeat this virus is, of course, the discovery of a vaccine. And since the start, we've been supporting the most promising projects. As of this week, the Imperial vaccine is now in the first phase of human clinical trials, and AstraZeneca has struck a deal for the manufacture of the Oxford vaccine. They're starting manufacturing now, even ahead of approval, so we can build up a stockpile and be ready should it be clinically approved. So that was just a quick reminder that Hancock's suggesting that uh, the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine going into production before any approval was given. Um, and uh, we asked at the, at the time, why would that be? Have they been given guarantees that they're going to be paid, whether approval has been given or not? Uh, or were they going to be given guarantees that the vaccine would be used, whether approval was given or not? Well, of course, a few weeks later, uh, in August, uh, we had uh, this document, a consultation document, changes to the human medicine regulations to support the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, and just to remind everybody what this said, it said COVID-19 is the biggest threat the country has ever faced. Scientifically led, step-by-step -step action plan, bloody, bloody, blah, so went on. Effective COVID-19 vaccines will be the best way to deal with the pandemic, it declared. Uh, the preferred route to enable deployment of a new vaccine for COVID-19 is through the usual marketing authorization, brackets, product licensing process. 
A temporary authorization of the supply and unlicensed vaccine could be given by the UK's licensing authority under Regulation 174 of the Human Medicines Regulations. Uh, a COVID-19 vaccine would only be authorised in this way if the UK's licensing authority was satisfied uh, that there's sufficient evidence to demonstrate the safety, quality and efficacy of the vaccine. But we've got to remember that the uh, UK's licensing authority is staffed by people that have formerly worked for the types of companies that are producing these vaccines in the first place. And so just what does it take for that organisation to be satisfied? I'm not clear we have an answer to that question. But anyway, unlicensed does not mean untested. This temporary authorization process exists to address the possibility that in certain situations of public health need, and so it went on. But the key point here, Brian, is we now have the situation uh, where we're heading towards uh, temporary untested vaccines going out and being used uh, as part of a mass vaccination program. And we also have, that's in the UK, in the US, we also have uh, tests uh, being used without authorization except for emergency temporary authorization by the Food and Drug Administration. So but the point is, this is, seems to be a trend that's developing in, across the, the Atlantic Ocean here, that we just plow ahead and just set aside any of the protections that are in place, which are supposed to be there according to the MHRA and the FDA and the CDC and so on to protect uh, the individual. Yeah, I, I think these, I'm going to use the expressions parked, they're parking these protections, Mike, because uh, what does the licensing process take if you've got to a point where a group of scientists can say this product is safe enough to be used on live human beings, then the licensing aspect of it must effectively be rubber stamping, isn't it? Uh, except that uh, it's the time that it takes to go through that licensing process. Well, so even well, though it is well, a, a, a rubber well, I've got a challenge on this because why? We're in a national emergency. How long does it take to get a group of people who are the licensing agents to sit in a room and say, the scientists have tested this product, it's safe, therefore we can license it? Ah, but it's that process, that process of testing, which is being foreshortened and therefore the normal uh, uh, licensing procedure uh, is being Ah, but the government satisfied. has told us that this doesn't mean they're untested. Uh, it, well, indeed, that's true. Somebody that's what, is lying, and I think it's the British government. I could go with that. I don't have any problem with that. But anyway, let's get back to the, the BBC article here, because it went on to say this. Uh, the document says that the vaccines will have to be given in two doses, 28 days apart, and this will be dependent on supply. So again, we're going to try to generate uh, supply in the same way that if you were paying attention to the Lufthansa uh, article, the independent article on Lufthansa, they were saying, well, uh, the, te the tests that we're going to roll out are going to be available for people in first class and business class only. They're effectively driving demand uh, by, by uh, artificially uh, limiting the number of people that get access to this. So speaking earlier at Birmingham City Council, COVID-19 Engagement Board, Paul Jennings, Chief Executive of Birmingham and Solihull Clinical Commissioning Group said 800,000 people would be prioritised in any rollout. So the decision has to be made who those uh, 800,000 people are. But um, I haven't heard of this Birmingham City Council COVID-19 engagement board before, Brian. Uh, well, we're going to have a little look at what's happening here. But what we're seeing, Mike, is that the whole um, network of organisations and boards and partnerships and committees that really came into being with Tony Blair's reign 
um, is now being put into effect so that policy from central government is just flowing through this raft of committees so that it's enacted as fast as possible. And of course, we reported a week or so ago that the government had set up this internal collaboration hub which was working alongside the cabinet office to do that very thing to ensure that once a policy decision was made by somewhere within the government of occupation that policy was going to be enacted on the ground as soon as possible and now we're starting to see the structure so uh, this was how it was being reported in local news so birmingham live massive vaccination plan for birmingham before christmas involving hundreds of thousands of people um, covid engagement board that gets a mention there uh, this is put out because this is sort of reassuring people you don't have to think it's democratic because the covid uh, engagement board has decided uh, this was a bit more of that article the local outbreak plan um, and it says the plan outlines how local knowledge experience and expertise will be used to prevent outbreaks and manage the virus over time as part of the national test and trace program so the whole thing being locked in together and what you see now is that local government officials do not actually think for themselves anymore. They just react to the diktats that come down from central government and then they enact that policy. They're on the case the moment the, the paper comes in from central government. And this is the sort of thing we're dealing with. So here's Birmingham COVID-19 local outbreak control plan from 30th of June 2020. And we've just decided to take a little bit of it to give people a look into the sorts of things that uh, they're going for. So here's the seven themes, care homes and schools, high risk workplaces, mobile testing units, contact tracing in complex settings, data integration, vulnerable people, local boards. And you can be sure that the test and trace is absolutely embedded in this. They want data. They want to know everything about people, where they've been, who they've been in contact with. All of this is being recorded and sucked up. And notice at the bottom, it says the contain tool includes a national joint biosecurity centre that will work with Public Health England and local authorities. So now we've got a mix of what is public health, but what's also security. And we've already got the troops on the street. So to me, this is effectively, I've got to call it Soviet style material, diktat from central government, backed up by the police and the military. Mike, we are in a dictatorship. There's no, there's no question of it. Um, so, you know, we're, we're constantly talking and discussing devolution. Uh, but in fact, this looks like the central, the hand of central government, absolutely over the top of any devolved authority. I'm going to use the word absolutely because every time the government says it's increasing democracy what it actually does is takes it away so you can wave goodbye now to councillors local councillors making some form of democratic fight back against this because at the moment they're just bullied by the cabinets within the city councils so here's part of that local government framework here see on the left we've got the cabinet 
the strategic cell, the tactical cell, this is all military speak, which has now come into local government. Health and well-being board, well, the individual is incapable of looking after their own health. We need a cabinet and a strategic cell and a tactical cell to do that for us. And there it is, the Health Protection Forum. You don't need to think. We've got a forum going to think for you. We're going to work the test and trace call. And there's the, the people at the bottom of the pile, the care homes, the early years and education. So we want to get the old people. We want to get the children, other settings, outbreak working group. And on the right, we list, we link in with all of these other agencies. But where I've always believed this stuff gets really dangerous is if we have a look here at the composition of the local engagement board, we've got councillors, but these councillors are not going to act for local people. They're going to do as they're told by their party, political party, and the cabinet selected councillors. But notice that you've got the police embedded in this. So no separation of powers whatsoever. This is a dictatorship. And if that's Birmingham, well, here's Doncaster. Somebody kindly gave us this email that had been sent out. So coronavirus Doncaster update. The current rate of infections in Doncaster remains at over 40 per 100,000 people. Well, we all, we all ought to be sheltering under our beds because that's clearly project fear. And of course, this what is... he actually means is positive tests, per 40 <laughs> positive tests per 100,000. My common sense has gone out of the window now. We're, we're just seeing pure propaganda and pure spin in order to get people completely fearful as to what's going on here. Um, well, it is not just, I mean, the, the BBC article and, and what Brian's been talking about here have been focusing on Birmingham, but it's not just Birmingham uh, because a number of people sent this uh, to us this morning. So thank you very much. So this is uh, from Wales. Uh, Wales. The Welsh authorities looking for a senior project manager for the mass vaccination program which is going to be taking place in Wales so let's just have a look and see what they had to say there we're looking for an exceptional enthusiastic and highly motivated individual to program manage uh, the COVID mass vaccination program uh, for Welsh University well I'm not going to try to pronounce that I do apologize to anybody in, in Wales uh, for their health board uh, it goes on to say this, working with a range of partners, the key aim of the programme is to vaccinate the entire population of that town, uh, including its healthcare workers as a key part of our response to the COVID pandemic. Um, and uh, well, you'll be glad to know that the salary for this, it runs from £38,890 to £44,503 per annum. Uh, and a response from one member of the public uh, to me was this, uh, that's not a lot in return for killing half the population. Yeah, and, and that, that response um, from the member of the public shows the cynicism that's now coming onto the table. But the project manager is going to be working, it says, with partners. And this is where the danger is, because who is accountable? If you point the finger at your local council, they say it's not us, it's the board. Point your finger at the board, who are you talking about? So this is this is the deliberate breakup of democracy and you've introduced this massive scam of COVID-19 to provide the smokescreen. Uh, Alex. Uh, that Welsh local health board is Cuntav Morganog, which used to be known as the Vale of Glamorgan, which is uh, the area south and west of Cardiff. Uh, for overseas viewers, particularly American, you can think of South Wales in similar terms to the Great Lakes and Pennsylvania Rust Belt. Uh, you know, people in the rest of the country 
or in authority at least, look down their noses at these post-industrial plebs, basically, and think that they're ripe for culling, I'm afraid to say, is the, is the long thought of it. Um, the only frame that makes sense to me for understanding the segment you've just gone through is that of population optimization population optimization. I understood mostly from David Ellis that this is how the captains of industry at a very high level think. Are there enough workers and not too many um, suckers on the teat of charity, as it were? I came across an extremely good uh, quotation on this from the mid 20th century by the insightful writer C.S. Lewis. He says, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims, this is plural as a whole, yeah, for the population, not for the individual, because the individual has no say anymore, but for the population as viewed from outside it supposedly. A tyranny exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. Well, we've just seen a, a diagram of how omnipotent moral busybodies exist. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own goodwill torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. This very kindness stings with intolerable insult. To be cured against one's will and cured of states which we may not regard as disease is to be put on a level with those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will. Mm. It is to be classed with infants, imbeciles and domestic animals. That's 70 years ago, Brian and Mike. And, and, and absolutely hits the nail on the head because if we look at, of course, as Brian has pointed out many, many times, we look at much of the, the sort of uh, material that comes out of central government, which is designed to engage with the public, it is cartoonish, ch childish. Yeah. They view us as, as children, and that's absolutely what uh, he's saying there. Yes, and I'm afraid to say it goes across the Western world. Okay. Okay, well, it gets better because, uh, of course, uh, uh, various mainstream outlets today pointing out this, uh, the COVID-19 proposed social distancing framework. Uh, this was published on the 30th of September 2020. I believe it was leaked uh, once again. Um, and uh, so various uh, newspapers and the BBC and others have been pushing this around. Uh, it's labelled for internal use only. It's labelled official sensitive. It's not really a serious classification as such, but uh, that's how it's labelled. Uh, and this is uh, what they're talking about. Uh, three local alert levels of non-pharmaceutical interventions for the effective management of risk. Uh, alert level one, two and three. And let's have a look at some of the detail of this. Uh, so this is a new traffic light system, I suppose. So here's alert level one. That includes the rule of six. Uh, Childcare bubbles for uh, under 15s. Uh, wedding and civil partnership uh, ceremonies and services up to 15 and attendees. Funerals up to 30. Uh, significant event gatherings to 15 only. Support groups to 15. No mass events. Uh, organized sport only. Uh, allowed outdoors. Uh, visitors, uh, sorry, visiting indoor hospitality, leisure, retail settings. Uh, under rule. Uh, and for businesses, of course, uh, all sectors which are permitted to open by law can remain so, providing they meet COVID-19 secure guidance, face coverings, uh, food and drink venues, table service only, and so on. Uh, so that's uh, that's number alert level one. Uh, then we get to alert level two. Uh, and what does that take us? That is in addition to alert level one, uh, with further restriction, restrictions, so people will not be able to meet others outside of their household in private dwellings. 
uh, apart from support but the support bubble including outside space in the home i.e gardens so you won't be allowed to visit meet people in the garden uh, visiting indoor hospitality uh, leisure retail settings is restricted to one household so two households are not allowed to meet and those people are advised to visit care homes only in exceptional circumstances uh, people only traveling for essential reasons of course these are not defined so it can be pretty much be made up on the spot uh, you can still go on a holiday outside your area but you should only do this with people you live with or who or people you've formed a support bubble with and people can play a team sport only where this is formally organized by a sports club and so it goes on uh, the the limitations for uh, businesses uh, get uh, stronger as well and then of course once we get to level three it starts getting uh, more serious because it's in addition to everything all the restrictions for levels one and two uh, no social contact outside your household in any setting uh, so you won't be allowed to go to pubs restaurants or anything like that restrictions on overnight stays away uh, and places of worship can remain open uh, but no organized non-professional sports permitted uh, and uh, in addition to alert level one and two for businesses uh, the closure of hospitality and leisure businesses uh, is set um, and so that's uh, that's the direction of travel it seems Mike that's the direction of travel but the way this is presented is is to produce this list uh, because people uh, will then follow through the list they don't think they just follow through those bullet points so the first target of this psychological operation in the first instance uh, are, the, are the boards in those councils mm -hmm. that we've just taken people through because when any of those board members get this document this becomes the law and then they're going to implement it because it's on the piece of paper they won't be thinking at all um, Alex I'm going to say we're looking at unbelievably dangerous a very popular expression from me um, uh, use of applied psychology in order to get this political doctrine through well if uh, your catchphrase Brian is uh, unbelievably dangerous and Mike's is absolutely <laughs> then perhaps mine is philosophic philosophical uh, but you do have to be philosophical uh, in order to make sense of this because you've already uh, identified the underlying issue which even on a lunchtime news broadcast is of the essence here it's germane it is that people in tyrannies implement so-called law from pieces of paper without switching on the gray matter particularly using the heart and the conscience and the intuition and we're going to see later on that germans and frenchmen are making a particular point of this and saying why are the british in particular giving up their common law because that is the embodiment of common sense and first principles uh, compassion and proportion uh, in favor of thou shalt and thou shalt not from some robotic central organ yeah thank you for that well how do we know that the uh, government is getting a little bit windy about the reaction from the public well I think we know because we're suddenly seeing a dramatic increase in surveys asking us what we think let's have a look at this this popped up over the weekend on Sky News are you satisfied with Boris Johnson's decision to face the current situation uh, notice that the yes has got a good green color to it and of course it's uh, what 55 or maybe 60 percent uh, the nose well that's a bit of a wishy-washy uh, pink color but that's uh, definitely less than half and the I don't knows uh, well they're a dirty brown color but uh, as far as this is concerned hopefully they're going to be saying yes so 
What is this? I think this is now use of more propaganda tools in order to try and seed the idea that people actually agree with this dictatorship as it installs itself, which of course they don't. Uh, well, of course that's from mainstream press, so can it be trusted? Hard to say. Let's have a look at uh, what Patrick did over the weekend. Uh, Patrick Hankson did this, if you want to have a look at his uh, Twitter feed. Uh, survey, do you believe we're actually in a real pandemic right now? Brackets, no caveats, it's straight yes and no answer. Now this poll is, is closed, but 9,872 votes is quite a response uh, to that. And 84.7% of the people said no they do not believe we're actually in a real pandemic at this point uh, so i think that's quite an interesting uh, response and statistic and, and i would believe that we're looking at a correct response here mike because when you talk to people now uh, you're sensing from a, a very large number of people that they they are unhappy with what's going on they don't quite understand it but they're not comfortable with it they're beginning to see through the uh, scam uh, now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, there are options to join us there and your help very much needed and very much appreciated. Now, Alex, uh, let's move on to uh, uh, Dr. Rainer uh, Fulmich. Is that how we pronounce his name? Spot on, Dr. Rainer Fulmich. Uh, and uh, <coughs> well, he's, uh, he's a lawyer in Germany and has decided to take a court case. A very senior one, in fact. He has um, he has a double accreditation. He works for the uh, Bar Association, or is accredited by the Bar Association of California, as well as being a practicing trial lawyer in Germany. And quite unusually, uh, he has, as well as a double degree from uh, a common law and a civil law jurisdiction, and a double accreditation, he's published on sectors as diverse as banking law, medical law, and international law, and has been a professor and lecturer at universities in Germany and Estonia. And he's now one of the four men who are sitting, I think it comes out of um, two bodies in Germany called Doctors for Truth and Lawyers for Truth. But the four person uh, body that he's now on is the uh, extra parliamentary coronavirus inquiry that has been set up in Germany. Uh, they call themselves Stiftung Corona Ausschuss. So they are the, the charitable foundation to, to uh, conduct an investigation into COVID response. Uh, very signally taking the name Ausschuss, which in German usually means a parliamentary committee to say, well, the Bundestag has failed, so we're going to have to do it ourselves. Rainer Fulmich in the last 24 hours has, uh, if you just put the name Rainer Fulmich as spelt on screen, R-A-I-N-E-R space F-U-E-L-L-M-I-C-H. If you put that into YouTube, you will find his uh, video Crimes Against Humanities of one day ago very easily. He is a lawyer speaking an extremely good English, is, is almost sort of second native language by this point. Um, it is heavy going for some, despite his careful elocution and elegant arguments. Um, but I'll try to summarise what he's saying in the coming slides. But first of all, I will say that in a recent interview with Marcus Langemann, he went into some more detail than he was able to in the video. He's proposing the solution of a class action lawsuit which people in Britain and Australia and New Zealand might think is a North American phenomenon because it's American and Canadian corporations who get sued that way. And the EU is trying to bring that into, into civil law in Europe now. But uh, Rainer Fulmich begins his previous interview by saying that a class action a lawsuit, which is for everyone damaged in the same way by uh, misbehaviour, uh, was created in England but no longer exists there. He says a few hundred years ago this was already. Now he goes into more detail about his trio, 
Um, in fact, we can put the, um, the, the quotation on screen at this point because that's a good introduction. Uh, he says this is in the previous interview that I have a transcript of, but it covers the gist of what he said in the most recent video as well, which is uh, the one I just referred to. What good is the best court in the world if I do not have a reasonable right of evidence, which in his other interview he calls the beautiful Anglo-American law of evidence? By contrast, he says German courts tend simply to accept all the nonsense told by cheating corporations. Then we get on to a trio of people who are in the frame for Dr. Fulmich. But first of all, three questions, because he's, of course, the lawyer priming the uh, unofficial uh, inquiry that these German lawyers and doctors are now holding because of the failure of their parliamentarians to do the same. Dr. Fulmich's questions are, first of all, does the reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction test, RT-PCR, actually confirm the presence of SARS-CoV-2 virus or not. That would be a very germane to Mike's opening section today. Secondly, he says, have public health bodies been giving information or fear-mongering, which happens to be the bulk of Brian's section just now? And thirdly, he suggests that not just Scotland and the state of Victoria in Australia are test uh, or laboratories for worldwide rollout, but he thinks that Germany has a role too as a lab because of its disciplined authorities. He says, have German government bodies, both federal and state level, been subject to particular lobbying, he means by big pharmaceutical companies, before the um, so-called pandemic began? Now he homes in on three individuals, which he's done in the previous interview as well. Before we put this on screen, the reason he forwards, he focuses in on these is because these three men together claimed the opposite of what was on the package inserts for the PCR tests themselves. Famously, and as the inventor of the polymerized, polymerase chain reaction test said uh, at the time of inventing it or later, they are not approved for diagnostic purposes. And I think the inventor also added strongly that you must not repeat them through many cycles, particularly not more than 35. But the, um, the PCR test for SARS-CoV-2 goes through 45 cycles, more than the originator ever said was useful or, or sensible. Now, these three gentlemen claimed the opposite of what's on the insert. And that was the reason for all the measures taken, especially the lockdown. So let's look at these three gentlemen. I haven't put the photos on screen. They're not particularly big names in the English speaking world, but they know that the uh, spotlight's on them now. The first is Professor Christian Drosten, who's the chief virologist at a major Berlin hospital, La Charité. He, as Dr. Filmic explains in the Crimes Against Humanities video that people can look up, wrote a computer script early in 2020, having heard about the Wuhan outbreak. And this, after summary consideration, became the test that the World Health Organization approved as a so-called diagnostic test for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the COVID-19 symptoms. Secondly, a veterinarian, so an animal doctor named, named Lothar Wieler. I think rather importantly, Dr. Filmich calls him Mr. Wieler in this video. He's suggesting he's not uh, an earned PhD. I don't know whether that's true or not. Lothar Wieler chairs the Robert Koch Institute. People will know that the Koch uh, uh, premises, um, the four, four uh, Koch tests uh, are not uh, applicable, have not been applied uh, to the claims uh, about of a pandemic this year. But the Koch Institute in Berlin is the equivalent of America's Centers for Disease Control or Public Health England. And uh, it was Wieler who called for children to be made to feel responsible for, quote, the painful, tortured death of their parents and grandparents if they did not stay away from them. Wow. And the third man in the frame for Dr. Fulmich is the well-known Dr. Tedros Adhanom of Eritrea, 
or Ethiopia, I beg your pardon. He, he worked on Eritrea in his dissertation. He's a biologist and he's the director general of the WHO, the World Health Organization. And why does Dr. Filmic think that he has a legal case to answer? Because he declared a pandemic in a very loose sense indeed of that term. There's controversy over it, but Filmic claims that the WHO either tightened up or completely, re sorry, loosened or completely rewrote its definition of a pandemic in 2008 when there was a previous pharmaceutical-led panic over swine flu so that worldwide presence was enough you no longer needed serious cases in various parts of the world to call a pandemic and of course there's money involved now if the who calls a pandemic that's the point that's being made um, maybe a little time for you to respond before we get into the legal nuts and bolts um, it is quite a serious video I don't know whether Brian and Mike have seen it I haven't seen it yet, um, Alex, but uh, we're, we're taking this information that you're giving us on the screens effectively uh, new. I'm very encouraged by the fact that we have such a, uh, a senior legal man challenging and he's doing the right thing by challenging individuals. So he's stripping them of any ability to hide behind their organisations and he's going for them as individuals. Uh, I've no doubt he's obviously thought this through very carefully at law. Um, but there was a gasp here in the studio as you talked about children being made responsible um, for the torturous death of their parents or grandparents. Um, because this is immensely dangerous stuff, isn't it? And uh, if he's challenging well, it, then I think he needs the maximum support. It's Dr. Absolutely he does. It's Dr. Filmich's claim that it was Lothar Wieler, the veterinarian who now heads the Robert Koch Institute in Berlin, wrote those words. I didn't know that link, but the words are those which are shown on screen by Dr. Karina Weiss, the wife and uh, close colleague of Dr. Sucharit Bakti, well-known German um, epidemiologist, if I get his specialism right, who who's dissents from the current panic. And I showed that last time I was on the news. Um, Dr. Rice talking, we didn't play the sound, but she was talking through point four of the German Interior Ministry's uh, strategy to cause panic, which is still on the German Interior Ministry's site. We'll cover it either at the end of this segment or in extra time, I don't know which, but uh, we're going to look into that. It's exactly what was written. And now we we hear that the man who wrote it is Lothar Wieler, who is a vet, not a, a human medical doctor. Now we get into the law for, of it. First of all, uh, this is quoted in both of the recent interviews that uh, Thornich has done. He says one must always follow the principle of listening to the other side first, which in Latin is audiatur et altera pars. And he says that that has completely been uh, excluded. So that brings us into a series of problems with civil law as practiced on the European continent. And here are, this is, this is my tweak, I will be perfectly honest here, this is my tweak of what he says. Uh, but I'm sure that if we were to offer him commentary, he would not have a quibble with the way I have represented them, because he's one of these few legal minds who straddles the two worlds, the world's two health, uh, sorry, world's two law systems at a high academic level. And he said, with particular reference to this kind of public health panic, there are at least four problems. First of all, discovery, a word which is used in North America more than in Britain, but is a civil, sorry, a common law process worldwide. There's no discovery before trial in the Napoleonic law jurisdiction. Because the judge simply calls uh, one party in and says, give me your evidence and I will consider whether you're guilty or not. Uh, you don't get both parties um, uh, oppositionally, um, adversarially asking each other, well, you must show me, first of all, all the documents you have of relevance to this. So in practice, as Dr. Filmich says, the powerful can destroy the incriminating evidence before uh, the trial. Either they hold it in-house or they have influence over its possession. Uh, one has to think of Hillary Clinton here, but at least that's come to light. 
Secondly, this wonderful brief French word tort, simply meaning wrong, which is a cornerstone of common law with many, many uh, domains of case law and precedent behind it. That doesn't exist as such in the, in the civil law jurisdictions. Most civil law jurisdictions simply have one single article in their books of civil code um, which say that if you cause someone uh, an injury knowingly uh, or, or willingly, uh, then you are uh, liable, which has caused all kinds of jurisprudential problems because it has to be worked out from scratch with nothing else to go on. Torto, on the other hand, has centuries of precedent and tradition behind it, and you, you've uh, got a more fleshed out understanding of human nature there. For, for example, in this case, well-meaning people in authority say everyone must stay indoors, people die and suffer and lose money and livelihoods as a result and have their health and families broken up. That's taught. That's wrong. In the civil law jurisdictions, as Dr. Filmich says, you have to prove intent very strongly, not just the results. Thirdly, Dr. Filmich says, when judges are in the lead in a trial, they will lend credulity to the mightier party. Yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, is the practice. If a mighty pharmaceutical or a federal ministry of health says that was the best we could do, a judge is going, is going to say, well, of course, because he's funded by the state. A jury is going to say, in the famous words of the Christine Keeler trial, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? they their uh, sympathies are with the underdog and the common man. Fourthly, Dr. Filmich says, continental prosecuting lawyers, attorneys, barristers, whatever you wish to call them, are not trained in the law of evidence, furnishing proofs, because the judges they appear to all before, and this is increasingly true in Britain with the move towards European-style tribunals, they are geared towards philosophical arguments. They like dancing on pinheads. They don't like um, lawyers coming up and saying there has been a quantifiable harm here. And it's not just this German either. Here is a quite senior legal commentator, Dr. Gregor Pupink, a PhD of law, who has been on many expert committees at Strasbourg level, so European coordination of law outside the EU. This is a completely separate body, the ECHR. And he's done some very detailed observations on ECHR and Strasbourg judges. He, for example, was the lead author of that PDF that caused a splash this spring about Soros influence on non-governmental organizations at Strasbourg. Dr. Pupink, European Centre for Law and Justice Director General, says common law, and he, this is, uh, he, said, he said this in an interview presenting a book about his findings observing Strasbourg for many years, where common law and civil law judges sit on the same cases, which is chalk and cheese, so it always ends up in a mess. He says common law bases its reasoning on analogy. In other words, an English or American judge is going to say, have you caused harm? Well, obviously you have. Pooping adds continental judges, and sadly increasingly American and, and especially British judges, are not used to analogy. They don't spot major premises, first principles, and they don't spot precedents. And so they find themselves basically operating in a vacuum, judging without restraint are his words. And he goes on, the consequence is judicial activism. Well, even in America, that's a big problem now, but even more so in Europe. Government by judges. I think we're going to leave it for extra time to talk about the German scaremongering document, aren't we? But uh, just to close off this section, uh, people can go to the URL that's on screen now, eclj.org slash writers slash Gregor Heifer Pupink. And they should also look at this interview, which they can find in a search engine on the ECLJ website about the ECHR, full interview with Boschjan M. Zupancic, detailed observations on what Britain and America are losing, particularly Britain, in the headlong rush towards civil law and its particular relevance to trying to prove that the government and health authorities and pharmaceuticals have caused us lethal harm. 
I'll just say, Alex, what came into my mind as you were running through that, or specifically, of course, we're talking about the impact of, of COVID here. Uh, but what came into my mind was to be inside one of the family courts here in UK, where, of course, you're not seeing common law at work at all. You are seeing judges do so many of those things, giving a judgment based on the mightier power and using uh, philosophical principles that have come through the so-called child protection documentation. So uh, I think we're, we're all guilty, aren't we? We've allowed our common law to be trodden underfoot. And now when times are really dangerous, it's very interesting to see that people are reaching for the protection of proper common law and proper, proper trials within a common law court. That that Sorry. is absolutely the. Uh, Go ahead, Alex. That is absolutely the, the key issue that's there. There is how much have we handed over to professionals? I mean, here in the Netherlands, they have no juries at all, which even Belgium and France do have. And Dutchmen have got so lazy in this that they'll say, "Well, I don't want to uh, to judge another man's case. I want to leave it to a professional." It's uh, completely alien to them now. The idea that a professional judge might have his own biases and uh, uh, and, and presuppositions against those of the common man. By the way, people often ask where they can find extra time segments. To be a logged in UK column subscriber first, you then go to ukcolumn.org/community, and from there you can go to sections and forums, and finally UK column news extra. It takes a few hours after each uh, UK column news live episode for them to appear there. We don't broadcast them live. Thank you for that. Okay. Well, Where does that take us? Well, it's going to take us to Tesco, remarkably, and uh, we'll do this section very quickly, but a very big thank you to one of our viewers who got a little email from Tesco and paid attention to it. Let's have a look at what it said. Uh, well, of course, it said every little helps. Uh, together we can do this. But essentially, the chief executive said that it's been a while since they'd written and they needed to do an update. Here we are. It's been a little while since we last wrote to you about our responses to COVID-19. So I wanted to share an update on what we're doing to ensure that everyone can get the food they need in a safe environment. Underlying fear factor there. You're not going to get fed because things are so serious. Mm -hmm. But if you cling to Tesco, we can feed you. So uh, basically, well, they were very pleased. I've put in there hooray because um, Tesco was obviously pleased that they were doing good business, as we'll see. But the headlines, food for all, we've good stock levels, we've double checked, sorry, we have doubled the number of home delivery and click and collect slots to one and a half million each week. So COVID is good for business. Tesco, Mike. More, more shutdown is good for Tesco. Last week, we've delivered more orders than ever before and we'll continue to increase the number of online slots available. COVID is good news for Tesco. Safety for everyone, colleagues at entrances to help everyone follow the safety measures. This is the marshals coming in, but of course we don't call them marshals, we call them colleagues, and they're going to help everyone follow the safety measures. We're going to have traffic lights, hand sanitizers, cleaning solutions and social distancing. That's all absolutely going to stay. And it says, follow the legal guidance on wearing face coverings. Um, if you haven't got a mask, we have packs and masks to buy so we can make a bit more profit out of you. And then they give you a reminder the police are able to issue fines for not wearing a face covering unless you are exempt. So it's, it's, it's carrot and stick all the way through, Mike. Intimidation, warnings, uh, but at the end of the day, Tesco can make more money out of you. 
Well, they're supporting communities, in case you don't know. So one and a half million raised for the charities Diabetes UK, British Heart Foundation, Cancer Research, and they're not supporting David Noakes, I don't believe. Our Bags of Help Community Grant Scheme has awarded four million to over 8,000 groups supporting communities affected by COVID-19. Well, how are these communities affected by COVID-19? Aren't we all affected by COVID-19, Mike? So don't know what that one's about. But we've expanded food donation during the pandemic, donating three million of food every month and launching a new partnership with Olio to help distribute even more food. Apologies for the typos there. And they're going to support their own colleagues. Paid absence for self-isolating. Uh, face coverings and screens. That's all good news. Uh, 16,000 new permanent roles, <coughs> excuse me, for help with demand for online orders. It's all an expansion of Tesco business. Uh, and then this, we've arranged free access to two mental uh, well-being tools, Headspace and Silver Cloud, to all of our 300,000 colleagues. So the situation is so bad that uh, Tesco is admitting it's now got mental health problems, but they're going to help colleagues. Well, this is where they're going to send colleagues to, Headspace. Um, what are they into? Well, this is, um, uh, this is the use of mindfulness. Uh, it says Headspace loves science. Just 10 days of Headspace can increase happiness by 16%. No, this is real, Mike. This is real. So we're not going to get rid of the problems like let's deal with the nonsense of lockdown, which is depressing people. We're going to go to a company like Headspace because that's going to make you happy. Or you're going to, <coughs> excuse me, you're going to go to Silver Cloud, breaking down barriers, improving outcomes. And um, this is the chief executive, Ken Carhill. Now, he doesn't actually say that he's got any mental health qualifications or health qualifications. So the, the drive of this company is all to do with connection over the internet. That's what it's about. But interesting people encourage people to have a look at because several of them are connected with um, University College Dublin. So presumably they've taken their research into a profit uh, uh, making opportunity, uh, founder and scientific advisor here, Gavin Doherty. Um, what have we got? We've got this young lady. Well, she's eclectic background, not really any health, although she has worked in research, a lot of computer stuff. And then we had this gentleman that I paid attention to because he was a clinical psychologist, um, but he's also been helping roll out digital health care. Um, so let's just pop back to Silver Cloud. What would you think that they've got an award in? Mental well, health. Must be mental health or well, something. Well, I'm that. afraid not. No, the awards that I picked up was that they're one of the top 100 global disruptive companies in healthcare. So they're boasting that they're involved in disrupting the present system to get in their system. And this man um, is on their team. And I was fascinated because he's also working with the NHS Innovation Accelerator. As a clinical psychologist, I bring patients know best to the NHS Innovation Accelerator. My aspiration is that anybody in the UK will have access to their own healthcare data, be able to share it with whomever they please, and to participate proactively with the record to manage and lead their own care. 
So I found that very difficult to believe because basically the last people the NHS are considering at the moment is the individual and it's giving your data to other people. Oh, no, selling. Selling, Mike, yes. So maybe this gentleman's a bit confused. Um, but this is the NHS Innovation Accelerator. And what you will find is that it's the NHS locked into big commercial organisations and a whole range of people. Let's put a few of them on the screen. You've no idea really what these people are about. Some of them work with government, some of them with big pharmaceutical companies. Some of them have got their own businesses or they're into uh, big banks and uh, money. Uh, goes on and on. We don't know who they are or what they're doing. But what we can find is that that same company, Silver Cloud, has got contracts with the NHS. And here they're getting a recommendation by the NHS that their online mental health application works. So that seems a little bit of a nice circuitous um, relationship. Um, but the key bit is that we've no idea who these people are transforming the NHS. But now, of course, they're all being backed um, slightly indirectly, but by Tesco. Good. Just what we need. Um, possibly not. Mm. Let's just uh, briefly uh, remind ourselves from Friday, uh, the Coronavirus Act and the missing 300. Uh, where were they? Who were they? Uh, well, we now know that. Thank you for everybody that, uh, that pointed it out to us. Uh, but also, there seems to be a link to the Simon Dolan case here, because, of course, if you remember, there were amendments uh, were uh, attempted to be made to this, but uh, Lindsay Hoyle, the speaker, refused to allow those amendments. And he said uh, this then risks decisions that are rightly the responsibility of Parliament, ultimately being determined by the courts. Well, the only major court case in this area that's going on at the moment is the Dolan case. So clearly there was a concern within Parliament that uh, that any amendments or any uh, opposition to the uh, coronavirus, the extension of the Coronavirus Act would will ultimately result uh, in uh, you know, a, a positive situation for the Dolan case. Um, so let's just uh, look at who voted for what. Uh, we can find that the all 330 MPs uh, that voted for the extension of the Coronavirus Act 2020 uh, were Tory MPs. Uh, the 24 that voted against, uh, as we mentioned on Friday, a few Tories, uh, SDLP, uh, some uh, few Labour and all of the Liberal Democrats were in there and also uh, the Green Party. Now, uh, you'll notice that aside from the six Labour MPs that voted against, there are no other Labour MPs on there, no SNP MPs either, no DUP MPs took part in this vote. Uh, so that's mostly where the 300 missing MPs were from the Labour Party, from the DUP, from the Scottish National Party. Uh, and uh, from the uh, SDLP, I think it was. I think the, the one that voted against was Alliance Party. I may have uh, misspoken there. But uh, uh, this is uh, Nick Simmons, uh, the Shadow Home Secretary, who said, uh, apparently here in the UK, we have seen over 42,000 deaths, lives altered in ways unimaginable a year ago, and our economy facing one of the worst recessions on record. Uh, he went on to say, we accept the challenge that presents, which is why we've recognised that. In a pandemic, any government needs extraordinary powers available. We will not block its passage. So th this is just, Alex, an unbelievable statement from the uh, from the Shadow Home Secretary, because what he's basically saying is uh, th that you know, because the government has created all these problems with the economy, he's created all these problems with the National Health Service, it's created all these excess deaths through the lockdowns, um, which he's not acknowledging, but that's what the situation is nonetheless. He's saying that 
under those circumstances, then the government that created those problems in the first place needs extra extraordinary powers to, to solve the problems that they created in the first place. And so the Labour Party isn't going to block its passage. I noticed that they didn't decide to not block its passage by voting for the extension. They just didn't vote at all. Well, abstentionism, of course, uh, as in the United Nations, is a is a sort of cowardly way of uh, of going along with an agenda without being seen very transparently to do so to your own electorate. Well, very quickly on that, I would say that one of the silver linings to last to this summer's um, Supreme Court shenanigans, where of course people know that uh, an act of parliament or a bill at that stage uh, was found unconstitutional, uh, which is not supposed to happen in the, either the English or the Scottish Constitution has a flip side to it, which is that now we have our Madison versus Marbury moment. In the United States, within 15 years of ratifying the US Constitution, it had gone through courts uh, that uh, Congress could not enact unconstitutional legislation, even where the Constitution did not particularly prohibit them in words from doing so. There was such a thing as court testing of constitutionality. People have shirked uh, the idea of that in Britain for many decades, centuries in fact, but we do now have our Madison Marbury precedent in the form of that Supreme Court judgment against uh, Mr Johnson and the government this summer. And it can be used in order to do the job that the parliamentary opposition is failing to do, which is to strike down legislation as unconstitutional. And it should be used. Yes. Yes. Uh, are we going to go on or are we going to leave it there for now? I think on this occasion we should go on, Mike, because I think that what, what we've got to um, bring to our audience today needs to be brought in front of them. Okay, well, we'll just skip this one and, uh, and sorry, and we'll move on to the, the next story. Go ahead and introduce it. Well, we, br we bring in our old friend Tobias Elwood, and it was a, a couple of days ago, the 30th of September, UK column reported this man's incredible speech um, in Westminster where he suggested that we needed more engagement with the ministry uh, by the Ministry of Defence uh, in order to um, help and carry out the critical national project, uh, pro project which is COVID-19. And of course you pointed out uh, Mike that he's Lieutenant Colonel in 77 Brigade so he's involved or his outfit is involved in spying on the British public via social media. Uh, but he was more or less saying, me, me, give me the job. That's how we took it anyway, um, of um, the control. So we're moving from a control via parliament, as far as Tobias Elwood is concerned, uh, to a control via the military. Uh, well, a member of the public emailed him, and uh, we'll just show you this remarkable exchange, uh, because the subject was, what are we to make of your most recent comments in parliament? And uh, the gentleman said, as a former serving army officer myself, albeit in the territorial army, I would now suggest you have a long, hard think about what you're doing and what the implications are of what you said in Parliament. As the people wake up to what's really happening, you're leaving yourself exposed to a public backlash that will leave you in a common law court in front of a jury of your peers. Now, I have taken some out. All of the email was polite, but I just had to keep it a little bit short. Everything our nation is currently experiencing is a lie, and I believe you know this. And to trigger this great reset, the collective and corporate deep state had to trash the global economy, so enter COVID-19. To put it bluntly, my friend, you are actively partaking in the rollout of global fascism. So that was a pretty crunchy email. This was the response from Mr. Elwood. Um, 
bring it up on screen. I suspect you have not done your research. Please stipulate what you believe I've said. And please don't use the words mandatory vaccination because I never said this. Any program would be voluntary. Isn't that just wonderful, Mike? Rest assured, it's all voluntary. Uh, so our viewer went back again to Mr. Elwood. Let's just have a look at what he said. Thank you for responding so quickly, Mr. Elwood, but please don't underestimate me. Of course, I do my research. Indeed, I've well over 30 years of detailed research under my belt when it comes to unraveling the truth about the hidden governance that influences our elected servants in Parliament. Now, here's what you said according to Hansard. Now, I've taken the big block of text out, but uh, Tobias was given back his own words as recorded by Hansard. And then our viewer went on, please will you now look at everything I sent you, especially the links. My concern is you are buying into a criminal narrative that's taking away our most basic freedoms whilst deliberately trashing the economy. But worst of all, it is the fact that any debate about vaccines has been deliberately shut down and any questioning about what is planned is condemned as being the work of far-right conspiracy theorists. Please advise, but do your research first. The people are waking up to this. Now, please prove to me whose side you're on. Are you with us, the ordinary people? Or are you with the corporate deep state with their plan for a great reset and a completely fake Green New Deal that's based on extremely bad science? Please advise, but do your research first. By your response, we shall know you with kind regards. Well, he did respond and we do know him. Let's have a look at what the man had to say. And it was very short and sharp and we're going to have a little bit of discussion. Yay, you've drank the Kool-Aid, visit a hospital and wake up. Now, Alex, I'm going to pass this over to you. When I looked at the reply, I knew it was a very aggressive reply but I thought I should do a little bit of research. So I discovered that Kool-Aid was in fact a refreshing drink, um, but actually it ties in with much darker activities um, around cults and death pacts. What do you make of uh, Tobias Elwood's response? I'll first give you the unlikely benefit of the doubt and say that if this is him, oh, by the way, I think he's saying yeah, but not putting the H on rather than yay as in whoopee. But yeah, you've drunk the Kool-Aid. The, 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 the best gloss you can put on that is that Mr. Elwood is using it in the very loose sense that's only very recent of the last 10 or five years, which is to say you're away with the fairies. Yeah, you're, you're, you're up, the, you know, you're around the tree. And uh, he signs off by saying visit a hospital and wake up. The best understanding of that, the best will in the world, is that he means go and see that there are real suffer people suffering from the current epidemic. Now the much more likely logical and linguistically correct view, which is that he, being of his generation, knows that uh, it was actually the wrong brand name, but it's become standardised. Those uh, nearly a thousand people who died in the Jonestown massacre, a cult mass suicide, well, a forced mass suicide in Guyana in 1979, were given a cyanide-laced soft drink, not Kool-Aid, but a related brand. And so uh, certainly people of his age and my age know that and at his level of, level of education that what's really meant by drinking the kool-aid is committing forced suicide and go and visit a hospital and wake up to me with his background as a as an officer in the army's mind bending unit is much more likely to be a visceral response saying go and get your head sorted out 
suggestions there of, uh, of mental reframing in hospital settings from both of the things he said. Alex, thank you very much for that. I had to say that when I first uh, read it and looked for an explanation, I took it as a veiled threat. Perhaps he didn't mean it as a veiled threat. But if we just pop this up on screen, people can check this out for themselves. So I've got a Wikipedia explanation of the Jonestown massacre. But what are the choices? Well, either Tobias Elwood was using some form of arrogant humour about psychiatric hospitals to anybody who challenges political ideas, or it was a veiled threat referring, as you say, to Jonestown and a suicide cult. Mm. Um, when I see this coming from a man who stood up in Westminster saying, well, I, I really should be in charge of running the whole COVID programme, I think there's something very dangerous happening. But uh, we'll leave it there. Perhaps our viewers would like to comment on that. Sorry, just one last thing. My, I did want to do this because a couple of days ago we had Grant Shapps, uh, Shapps MP on screen and we asked what this flag was. Um, at the time, I saw it very much as black with the red. Uh, well, we asked what it was. A lot of viewers picked it up and said it was the British Civil Air Ensign. And this is because he's very keen on flying light aircraft. So fair enough, Mr. Shapps, that's what your flag is. Uh, but I'm going to say something on a much more positive note. And that is that the response we had for viewers to that question was truly astonishing. I had so many people researching and then pr providing an answer. That is the response we'd like from viewers who are delving into other topics that we're raising, Mike. Yes, I'll just make the point here. Of course, he was posing with his books in the background there and so on. Uh, and he's got the British Civil Air Ensign there. It's slightly hypocritical because if I remember correctly, his light aircraft is registered in the United States uh, because there's less bureaucracy involved in, in keeping it airworthy and so on as a result of that. So so to have the British Civil Air Ensign there, mm, I think there's a bit of a problem with that. <laughs> yeah, okay, but we'll, we'll leave it with well done our viewers. So Alex. Just quickly, Alex. Yeah. Two things that I didn't get round to saying earlier, which fit in very neatly with Mr. Elwood. The first is the, the correct term I should have used earlier is Koch's postulates, K-O-C-H apostrophe S postulates. That is an example of core medical science not being applied this year. And to tie in with the uh, slinging of accusations of um, uh, being mentally in, uh, inadequate coming from government, it's interesting that uh, Dr. Fumich, the German lawyer we featured in the middle of the show, uh, as early as 1999, when he was doing one of his big cases, taking on industrial corporate negligence cases in Germany, had the German BBC equivalent, ZDF, tarnish his reputation by superimposing images of Scientology on the screen while discussing him. A German court order made them desist. So the German BBC is, uh, is another one, even 20 years ago, that's no stranger to this tactic of gently suggesting that anyone who doesn't go along with the programme is a nutter. Yeah, well, we'll be watching uh, Mr Elwood very closely, or perhaps his team in 77 Brigade is watching us. Hello. <laughs> we'll say hello and goodbye. Thank you very much for joining UK Column today. Thank you very much for all the support uh, that we've been getting. If you're not a, already a subscriber, please consider taking out a subscription. We'll leave it there. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.